From the Hype HQ studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Raj Nation, and I am the founder of Startup Hype Man. Fast-growing startups work with me because they want to become better storytellers. Whether that's for customers, investors, or a packed audience, they know that story is their ticket to stand out, stand apart, and change the game. And this podcast here is where I talk with entrepreneurs and leaders in the startup ecosystem, ranging from scale stage to early stage, as they share specific strategies that they have executed to stand out across three specific areas, sales, marketing, and people. Before we begin today's episode, remember you can head to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to the newsletter that doesn't suck. You'll get new podcast episodes and timely reads written by me, but also helpful articles from around the web and a notice of upcoming pitch competitions. All right, let's dive in and hear how today's guest is changing the game. Ladies and gentlemen, making her way to the microphone from Lansing, Michigan and currently residing in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She is the founder and CEO of Accelity. Please welcome Jackie Hermes. I feel like I need that recording from here forward. I'll use it at the beginning of every meeting I go into. I love it. Don't that was worry, amazing. actually. One of, the, one of the gifts you will have coming out of this episode is, a, is the snippet of that introduction. So you can play it to every room you walk into. That was impressive. Like, <laughs> give you props for that one. <laughs> she is Jackie Hermes, as I mentioned, founder and CEO of Accelity. What is Accelity? A B2B marketing agency specifically helping grow B2B SaaS companies through services like inbound marketing, strategy and execution, inbound software implementation and management. They are a HubSpot certified partner. They do online lead gen. They do content marketing, blogging, email, social, website design and management. Basically, if it involves a marketing service, Accelity does it. And they have grown a lot over the last few years, but they've been around since 2013. Jackie has been at the forefront of all of this growth. And today we're talking about something that's pretty timely for Jackie and her business, which is managing turnover during a growth phase. So Jackie, once again, welcome to the show. Let our listeners know, why is this on your mind and why is this important to you? Yeah. You know, when we had our prep conversation for this, we were talking about how the last six six to 12 months, I mean, this pandemic have been going. And that's one thing that's really on my mind, because not only have we been, you know, riding the ups and downs of the pandemic, and trying to still grow this company and meet all of our goals, but we're managing the the turnover of the kind of people that we used to hire when we were, uh, you know, like really fun, small or tiny startup to a little bit larger company and everything that goes into that. So honestly, when I was thinking about this podcast this morning, I was like, Ooh, I'm a little nervous to talk about this because I don't know that I have publicly talked about, you know, what it's like to go through that shift before. Well, hopefully this will be more educational and less of a gotcha uh, kind of podcast. <laughs> it shouldn't be the latter, but um, I'm excited to talk through all that. Before we do, let's learn a little bit more about you. Right before we hit record, you had mentioned to me that um, your mom is a hairstylist, so you're you're always kind of just like changing up your own hair because it's kind of pretty much in your blood, quite literally. Um, <laughs> I'm curious, growing up with a mom as a hairstylist, um, what lessons did she teach you given that she's an entrepreneur in her own right? Uh, and mm-hmm. also, are you um, the first to go to college in your family? Yeah, it's interesting. Both of my parents are like, kind of entrepreneurs, if you will. So like she, she did work for other people for a while. And then she opened up her own chair. And she has kind of like a, I guess, book of business, if you will, that she manages, right. But I don't know that she ever thought about herself as an entrepreneur, she would never use that word for herself, right. Um, and then my dad was a pilot before he retired an air traffic controller, he went into lobbying. He, so he wasn't an entrepreneur in those ways, but he tried to launch this product that was like uh, a lawnmower weed sprayer attachment. And I remember when I was little watching him go through the process of trying to prototype this thing and sending it, I think he sent it to China to try to get a prototype for it and trying to market it. My mom's in the front yard taking pictures of her spraying weeds and they were trying to market it and sell it. Um, I don't think he ended up getting it off the ground, but it was really cool to watch him do that. 
Um, and yet still, I didn't grow up thinking that either of my parents were entrepreneurs or that I would be one. Um, and I am the first person in my family that went to college and the first person that I guess has, you know, thrived solely on running my own company, which was met with mixed reviews, that's for sure, when I got started, but everyone's very supportive now. Well, let's talk through being the first to go th- go to college and go through college. Um, can you talk through what that was like your senior year of high school or maybe your junior year of high school? Was it a do I or don't I, or was it a given? And, and you know, I, I guess the question here is, there's one way, I guess, from a parenting perspective of like, oh, I went to college, therefore my child will go to college. And then there's another of, well, I haven't been to college. So I don't even know what college is like to tell my child what to do. So what was the relationship like with your parents at that point regarding this decision to go to college? There wasn't a question, right? It was, you are going to college. I frankly, I didn't even ever think that I wouldn't. I think because my dad has always had such big dreams and goals. And I mean, he got really far in his career, but he talks about how he thinks that not going to college held him back, not having that degree. And he, he kind of ingrained that in me growing up, right? He would tell me like, I held myself back by not going to college and you need to go. And so I actually went and got an MBA because I thought that education was really valuable. And I will say that, you know, like having those letters after my name certainly helped while I was building this company, but we're getting back to a place where it's just not as necessary anymore. Um, now I'm having those conversations with my kids. Like I have my two girls are both, they're planning on like moving away, going to college already. They're 10 and 14. And my son doesn't, he's like, I don't, I don't want to go. I don't know if I need to go. He's 10 too. And he's already saying, I don't need to go to college. And I'm like trying to fight this thought in my head that says, oh, you need to go to college. Just because intellectually, I don't really think that's completely true anymore. Mm, interesting. Okay. So I'm, I'm curious to know then you as a parent and you have, you have two kids, you just mentioned, um, two questions here. One, what are ways you see the way your parents parented you reflecting in how you parent your children? And my second question is parallels between running a company and running a family. Ooh, there's a lot of those. I run my house like a business. <laughs> that sounds so fun to be in my family. Um, the, the parallels. One thing that my parents did really, really well was instill a sense of discipline in me and this desire to achieve. And I think that has really like taken me pretty far in my career. Um, now that said, I'm trying to do the same thing with my kids, but maybe in a little gentler way, if you will. Like my dad wasn't in the army and he's very, he was always very strict and very disciplined. Um, I told him that I slept in until nine o'clock on my birthday last weekend. And he was like, what do you mean? (laughs) Like, you know, that's not, he's like, uh, one of his friends was going through a divorce recently and lived with my dad for like a year. And he was telling me how my dad would make sure he was like up early in the morning. And as soon as your feet hit the ground, you make your bed. And I was like, you're doing that to your friend in your sixties. Like the man will never change. It was very funny. Um, I would, I'm fairly strict with the kids, but not quite so strict just because I want them to, I want them to learn how to be disciplined and I want them to know how to follow through. I think that is one of the most important things that you can learn, but at the same time, I want them to be able to talk to me and tell me about, you know, whatever is going on in their life without judgment. So it's something that I'm working on because I'm pretty strict. And what was the second question? I totally forgot. You kind of answered both. Well, no, parallels of running a business and running a family. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that you have to just have systems to rely on, I guess, in in both. So like with the kids, we have systems around systems around when they can have their screens or, you know, because I don't want them sitting on their iPads all day, especially in this pandemic. It's very Mm -hmm. easy to do. Um, I just, I kind of give them boundaries on, okay, when you get up in the morning, here's the list of things you have to do. I have a morning list printed out for them. Like you must clean up your room, make your bed, brush your teeth, do these things. Just trying to make my life a little bit easier because the guardrails are there. I don't care how they get there, but you know, they, they know what they should be doing. And that's kind of, I would say it's very similar to running a business, especially how I manage the business. It's like the guardrails are there. And I don't really, you know, unless you need me in the process, I'm not really going to be a, a micromanager at all. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So autonomy, but within uh, like a certain sandbox. For sure. Absolutely. Okay. And, and I think that that changes as, you know, like my 14 year old daughter that's changed as she's gotten older, right. Cause she gets a little bit more autonomy though. She's a teenager now. So she is, it's a different set of challenges these days. <laughs> um, but you know, that's the, the members that have been on my team for a long time. Now they have a different sense of autonomy. Um, honestly, I don't even know what they do half the time, but I know the business is doing well and you know, they're showing up and they're getting it done. They're managing the people. Well, looks good to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose that's a good uh, segue then into our primary topic today, which is managing turnover during a growth phase. Um, to really make sure we can have that appropriate conversation, can you first talk through um, how Excelity even got started in the first place seven, eight years ago at this point? Yeah, I started basically by quitting my job and starting consulting. Um, I was not positive that I was even going to start a business, but I was running marketing at a private equity owned business. And they announced at the time that they were going to sell off half of the company. Um, and they were basically splitting all the departments down the middle. We had like a hundred person sales team and a three person marketing team. So we were under-resourced as heck anyway, to begin with. And this was an $80 million company at the time. And I just, I wasn't ready to, it, it felt like a, taking a step back in my career, right? Splitting the department down the middle, leaving me with one or zero people on my team, going back to like writing all the tweets and doing all that stuff where I was running the strategy previously. So I was like, you know, I'm going to see what else is out there. I left with no other job and one consulting client. And I was like, hmm, it's a risk that I'm willing to take because I know that I perform really well under pressure. I think if and you were I, already a parent at this point, right? I was. Yeah. So I had my son who was three at the time and both my girls are adopted. So they came along later. Um, it's always a weird story to tell, like, how did I have the youngest one at that time? So mm -hmm. for, cl for clarity, um, I did, I had the support of my husband at the time. And I also, I just do really well under pressure. I know that if I were trying to build on the side for, it would have taken me five years to do anything on the side um, versus having the pressure on me. I was like, well, I know I have to make money. And when I wasn't getting clients, I was applying to drive for Uber. I was applying for bartending jobs. It was like, I'm going to make money however I can, because I'm not going to go back to corporate at this time. So, so did you, did you do a stint of driving for Uber? I applied and then I ended up like right when I was going to start driving, I ended up getting a pretty good sized client and I was like, nice. oh, I don't have to do it. <laughs> I remember, I, you know, it had crossed my mind at one point and at, at that time they were a little bit stricter about how old your car could be. And my car was too old and beat up at the time for mm -hmm. to even be like allowed into the Uber driver pool, uh, which is kind of funny to think about. <laughs> like I got I know rejected that they from have driving Uber. Right. I don't know that they have those uh, restrictions now because I've gotten. They definitely don't now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. So um, thank, thank you for sharing the story of how this got started. Um, you talked about those first couple clients and, and maybe we can extend this not just into the first couple clients, but into the first few years. What were like, like, what was the business 1.0 version of this? What were the offerings um, and was it a straight service model? It was, it was similar to what we have now uh, by way of who we were targeting and the kind of services we were offering, which is funny because I think most people, when they start consulting, especially, it's kind of like all business is good business. And you learn pretty quickly that that is absolutely not the case because if you're not being targeted, you're not being picky about the kinds of companies and people you're working with, it's like a death wish, honestly. It's a recipe for burnout. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I was running marketing at a B2B SaaS company and I had a friend in Milwaukee who was the head of growth at another a B2B SaaS startup. And he was just talking about how they have no clue what they're doing in marketing because they had 10 employees, they had a little bit of funding, um, they didn't have any marketing people internally. And I was thinking it's a huge gap, right? Because when you're an $80 million company and you can have all this automation set up and, um, then when you're, you know, a 10 person company, it's way different when you don't really know what to do. So that's kind of the idea of why the company was born. Um, that said, I mean, I took 1 million different clients outside of SaaS after that first SaaS client, like 
remember working with a taxidermy company. I don't even know where that came wow. from. I remember <laughs> intervie- interviewing to edit a book for this guy. And I, I despised the book content. I didn't agree with any of it. And then he declined me. And I was like, that's probably for the best. <laughs> uh, so it was a windy road. But I mean, the, the target market is still the same. So B2B software companies start up to scale up. I guess those are very general terms. It's usually pre-revenue funded up to like, 30, 40 million. Um, and we're working with some private equity owned companies as well. When did you start bringing on employees? Was, I started hiring out to freelancers at first. And because I can, I can do all of the functions, but what does that really mean? You know, like I was hacking together design and it looked terrible. I'm sure I'd love to find some of that early work. Um, so I actually, <laughs> My creative designer or my creative director is the first designer that I brought on as a freelancer and she's still with me now. Um, so she celebrated six years in October. So she was probably one of the first people um, six and a half years ago. So about a year and a half in, I started bringing on full-time employees. I quickly learned that building all with freelancers was not going to be my jam just because it's it's not their first priority, right? When you're freelancing, you have lots of clients and mm-hmm. when you have employees, it is their priority. So it's just makes the game a little bit different. Okay. So then can you talk through like that next stage of growth, which was freelancer to employee and how, I guess at what point were you like, you know what, I can actually have employees and, and like I can budget for this, not just them as workers, but like the, the taxes that come with that, the healthcare benefits, you know, benefits as an employee in general, whether they're healthcare or otherwise. Right. Um, Talk me through your decision-making process and how you finally said, okay, we can do this or I can do this. I wish there was a process around this that I could talk you through, but there really wasn't. It isn't. Now, when I talk to people that are wanting to go from consulting to growing their company, I tell them, think really specifically about whether you want to grow a team because there's a lot that goes into that and hiring employees, making sure you're hiring the right employees, just like you said, payroll, taxes, you know, we're rolling out new benefits right and left now. And that's a big part of my job is, and it's just managing people day to day. Um, And the other thing is, you know, if you want to stay consulting yourself, raise your prices if you have too much work um, because you don't have to hire employees. I just kind of saw that as the next logical path without, I'm totally uh, like, all right, this is, you know, I'll weigh my options, but I make decisions quickly. I know that I can figure anything out. And that's what I did. I made my first hire and I was like, all right, we need payroll. Let's go do this. (laughs) Um, And kind of, kind of figured it out from there, honestly. Well, and actually one thing I would even say, not that I'm at employees yet, or if I, I don't even know that I will have employees, but a step one for me for that was I, I starting this year, I put myself on payroll. Um, mm-hmm. Cause I'm like, I need to know how, if I'm going to scale this, I need to know like what it's like to like have a regular payroll running and the costs associated with that. So that way, when, if a second person's coming on, on payroll, it's not a brand new thing. So it's just like my way of like prepping for it and also stabilizing things on my side a little bit instead of being like, what, what do I want? What do I feel like withdrawing this month? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I mean, the funny thing is though, you can put yourself on payroll and then you can still say, what do I feel like withdrawing? Yeah, I guess month? that's true. You can you still know? do the owner's draw at the end of the day. <laughs> and, and, and for tax purposes, it's actually kind of better to pay yourself in both, but yeah, I mean, now I have a system around it. But for a long time, I was like, do I need to remove myself from payroll this period? Because we don't have mm. enough money. And, you know, that's kind of we're because we're completely bootstrapped. That's part of the game. Uh, yeah. I had to choose between paying my people and paying myself many times. Yeah. Okay, so the company starts growing. Um, are you hiring to have people replace you? Or are you hiring to have people support you at that point? I, what I did was basically look at everything that I was doing and determine what I was best at and what I liked doing the most. So I ended up, I took a different approach than I think a lot of people take. A lot of people hire like the sales or the administrative person, and then they continue doing that actual consulting and strategy. 
I ended up hiring people to do the consulting and strategy and training them. And I held on to things like sales and admin until I found those right people. I just started building a sales team 18 months ago. I waited way too long because I thought I was really good at it. And it turns (laughs) out I'm not half as good as a professional salesperson. Um, But that's, yeah, that's how I approached it. Okay. So now the, the business starts growing. You've got at least 18 months ago, you hire your sales team. How does the, the identity of the company start to shift here? And, and really, what is that shift? Like, what, what was it before? And what, does, what has it become? I think a lot of startups don't even take the time to identify what their identity is, right? So it's, you start growing, and then it just kind of becomes whatever it is. We ended up doing exercises to do things like choosing core values with the actual team because it was like, you know, like you're making this company, what do you want it to be? Um, I actually still love that we did that because we were able to create the identity based on, you know, like what the people there wanted it to be and become. Um, and it helped get them really bought in. But now, you know, we're getting a little bit bigger and it's, it's a little different. Now we're looking at it as what do we want the company to be? What, do, what are the main traits that we want each employee to have? We're actually in the process of redoing our core values right now and going through thinking through that entire exercise. Mm. Let's talk about the turnover aspect then. Um, you know, as a company grows, what's natural is there's some attrition along the way. What was the story for Excelity? Like people were just like, I don't want to work here anymore. You had to like, you had to like, not forcefully, but you had to make the decision to say these people aren't going to cut it in this next phase of the business. Um, What kind of turnover have you experienced over the last, let's say, year and a half? Um, Mm -hmm. And how did that even come about? Yeah. So a year and a half ago, we had seven or eight people on the team. And at that time, we had not had anyone leave the company in two years. And we were very proud of that. Um, And that's good and bad, right? It's good that you can keep people on the team, but it's not good if you're not making the decisions that you need to make to keep the right people around. Um, My business coach has scolded me for keeping the wrong people in the wrong seats for too long. Um, We're all very Midwestern and nice and also didn't want to really deal with the turnover aspect of it. Um, A lot of the people that, I mean, when a company goes from seven people to 20 people, it's a different company, right? And in a, in a span of 18 months, we are, I guess we've professionalized a lot in the last 18 months to two years. So most of the people that left in the last 18 months, you know, left on their own and it ends up being good because they're leaving because they're not a fit for what the future of the company is. Um, that said, you know, there are probably some different decisions I could have made along the way, but they love you. What can you do? It's funny. You mentioned the phrase Midwest nice, which I'm not sure if everyone listening to this is truly familiar with what that means. And, uh, I'm, you know, I'm born and raised in Chicago, so I, I fit that mold and uh, just a quick little anecdote here. Uh, last year when, uh, my, I was, my then girlfriend and I were shopping for an engagement ring, um, we went to a couple places and the second place we went to, like she liked the ring, the selection there better than the first place. But the, the person at the first place was like so helpful that I had this such like internal emotional torment of turning down someone who was really helpful, even though like what she wanted was at this other store. And she was, and she, she's not from here. And she was just like, you need to get this damn Midwest nice out of your system and just make decisions already. <laughs> It's so true. And it's, I think it drives us to make decisions in a different way, right? And now I know, again, hindsight is always 2020. And we're doing things like looking at the structure in which we hire, and how we making these hiring decisions and what we're telling people about the company in the hiring process. Because if we're hiring people that aren't the right fit, that's on us it's not on them. It's, it's about the way that we're hiring the story that we're telling and making sure that we're hiring the right people. Let's dive into that a little bit more, the structure of it, because you mentioned previously, like you're professionalizing now. Mm-hmm. And I assume structure is one part of that and hiring structure is one part of that. But talk through what you mean when you say professionalizing and, and how that influences the different people at the company. Yeah, well, when we were a company of seven, we were kind of all friends, right? And we, we were all hanging out, doing whatever. There were not really any lines. 
And it it was interesting to my managers are all pretty much, you know, they're all pretty young. They've all grown up in the company. They're the same age as a lot of other people in the company. And so teaching them the difference between you can be friendly and being friends um, and maintaining respect from people is I think we've all kind of had to take a step back and look at our own behaviors or the way that we act at the company or outside of outside of the business at team events or whatever it may be to to get a better hold on you know like how we can make sure that we are respected as coaches in the company Um, so that's one level of professionalizing and then I mean the hiring process has definitely changed quite a bit. We have a professional HR person now, um, which we never did. I think we just spent years yelling HR when anything happened and there was no one. Um, Again, startup, startup life. That's what a lot of startups do. Um, So the process is different. And now we have an actual HR person that is telling us what to do, which is good. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm I'm actually curious to know, you talked, you said there, there's a difference between being friendly and being friends, especially from like a manager to um, like a subordinate level. And there are some people who are like, Oh, when I go to work, I want to be best friends with everyone I work with. And there are other people who are like, I like to have some separation of work and what I am outside of work. So I re- I'm really curious to get your thoughts on this. Like, do you believe in be friendly, but not friends or be friendly and it's okay to be friends. How does this, like what's the separation of church and state here? <laughs> I think that friendly is always okay. Um, I would say I am friends-ish with a, n- a number of people on the team, but uh, there has to be a line in my opinion, because then it gets to, you know, if a manager is friends with someone that reports to them, are, is their favoritism being shown? Mm-hmm. Are they hanging out on the weekends? There's a huge drinking culture in, in Milwaukee and in Wisconsin in general. I'm constantly talking to everyone about knowing your limits and making sure you are, you know, like acting appropriately. And you kind of, if you're going to be uh, in a management or a leadership role, I think you have to make the decision that you are, you know, you want to do all of that versus, you know, getting invited to every party and whatever else is happening on the weekends. So, it's a tough question. And I think it is a decision for each person to make. But that said, I definitely keep some separation. Um, I I love my team, I would love to be friends with them. But frankly, as a sole owner, I, I don't think I really get to have friends at work at this point. Yeah, it's it is it is a tough thing. Because so you know, my view on it is like, respect has to be held above all else. And the that respect sculpture, if you will, starts to keep getting chipped away, the more it's, yeah, come over to my house for a beer or, and and that's different than like, Hey, after work, we're going to go do something. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I almost think it's like, it's much easier if it's like you're friends with someone on another team within the company and your work doesn't necessarily overlap, but yeah, it really does become tough, especially from the favoritism side. And also just, Ah, to that point of like being more professional. It's like, how can you possibly take what someone says seriously if you've seen them like passed out in the middle of the dance floor at the bar? Right. <laughs> that's, that's exactly it. And like I said, with, with the drinking culture that we have here, that's what a lot of people are doing after work. And I will go and stop by. Like we actually just had an outdoor happy hour in 32 degrees the other day just to see each other in person. But I was like, you know what? I'm not going to drink at this. Um, I I don't want to make people feel weird, but at the same time, you know, I want to make sure that I am staying in what's comfortable for me and keeping that respect from people. Right, right. Okay. So I want to come to you next. Um, I want to learn more about like the managing of people side of this thing, but before we go there, uh, I do want to take a step back here and uh, all this season, what we're doing is featuring different uh, clients within the startup hype man portfolio, featuring their elevator pitches that we've developed using the startup hype man K Pasa formula today. Again, we are featuring swish house and here's the deal with Swish House. I think you're going to love them. Uh, if you're if you're into fitness, let's say you went to a spin class, but you couldn't figure out the resistance level on the bike. So then maybe you tried a hit class and you know those kettlebell swings hurt your back like they do mine. So you go to CrossFit and that's just, and it's CrossFit. It can be way too aggressive. 
Pilates, you feel out of place. And then at the gym, that guy just grunts with every rep while holding two milk jug sized things of water. You know, when it comes to working out, why put up with options that are hard to get up for, hard to find, feel like hard work and hard to feel like you fit in just to stay in shape. Instead, why not come to Swish House and burn a thousand calories without even knowing it? Swish House is the basketball fitness community for people who love the game and want to actually look forward to hitting the gym. You'll feel like a kid again and train like your favorite NBA player through a combo of classic team shooting contests, an array of individual drills, hoops-themed hit stations, and guess what? At the end, you get a high five from hitting the buzzer beer. We all know if you played ball before, there's no better shape than basketball shape. So whether you played on your driveway, you played in college, or you just like to shoot around, make Swish House your new home. Lace up with us at swishhouse.com by trying out your first class for just $10 and ditch the treadmill for good. Today, we are talking with Jackie Hermes, the founder and CEO of Accelity, the B2B SaaS growth agency. And we're talking about managing turnover during a growth phase. Now, before the break there, Jackie, you talked about like that, again, that separation of church and state, if you will, between like friends and friendliness. Um, as you, as the team starts to shift over time, what have you had to do to um, almost like rid yourselves of the old way of doing things? Because I'll tell you, as someone who uh, previously worked at a company that went through like three acquisitions while I was there, and you know, and we were like, when I joined, it was like uh, like a hundred twenty person company that then grew to like two hundred plus. Um, but the Chicago office was a satellite with like six people, um, and then that grew to like thirty. Uh, I'll tell you, I remember some big cultural changes and a really big like resistance to a new way of doing things, especially for the people who were like the legacy, uh, you know, employees. And it was things from like adopting Salesforce, like that was one big resistance, um, all the way to, oh, well, like we used to do happy hours like this. Now we have to do them like this. And there was just a lot of like, internal tension because of that. How have you navigated that with your team in terms of the old way of thinking versus the new way of thinking? I think that that is, I mean, that sounds exactly like what was, what was happening with us. I think that we are lucky in that we had a small team that was holding on to that old way and the majority of them are no longer part of the team. Um, not to be, <laughs> not to be cold. That sounds probably very cold. Um, but it, it, my managers are the ones that are, you know, still a holdover from that time in the old way. And they all really want to evolve with the company. And then we have one account manager who's been with us through the whole thing. And he's just like, he's awesome. He's a total ride or die. I feel like he's like a cultural staple in the company. And while he remembers how it used to be, um, he is totally down for helping grow the company and everything new that's happening. And I think he loves helping grow the team and everything that's going on. So you have to have the people on board, especially in this kind of environment. This is one thing that we're making uber clear now in the, in the hiring process is things change quickly and you have to be okay with that. Um, if you hate change or you don't thrive in change, this is probably not the place for you. Um, and saying something like that in the hiring process, some people are going to be like, Oh, you know, I don't want to be part of that. And then some people are going to be like, that sounds really cool. Or that sounds like a challenge that I would really like to take on. Yeah. So I think we've gotten less scared of being just super honest. Um, I'm almost talking people out of working at the company at this point in, in the hiring process, because then if they still want to come and work with us, great. We've shown all of our cards and they get to make the decision based on all of the like real information. Well, I would imagine then with, with talking about the fast paced nature in an interview, you're able to quickly suss out all those awful LinkedIn bios that say, I thrive in fast paced working environments. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of them. I, you know what? I always used to say that too. And it's like, yeah, I think I do well in those scenarios, but there's no one I don't think that truly thrives in like constant change. And there's, there's a difference between, you know, constant change on a whim and calculated fast paced change. Yeah. You talked about, you know, being super honest and or you said you're not afraid to be super honest and you're almost talking people out of joining the company and that's working well. Honesty, I think is a big component of this. 
especially as things may change so quickly and unexpectedly. Can you talk more about the, like, what, what does honesty mean speaking to your existing team and honesty and transparency? And like, what's that dividing line between you tell them everything versus telling my team what's important and not necessarily the stuff that maybe makes everyone panic. Yeah, that is, that's the line that I think I'm still trying to figure out how to walk because Mm. I, for a long time, I didn't hardly tell them anything. And that was when we were going through financial troubles when, like I said, I wasn't paying myself and I didn't want to scare them. And in in hiding and not wanting to scare them, I think I scared them more because people are intuitive. They know when something is wrong or something's up, they can tell, you know, if you've pulled away or you're, however you're acting. And so now I think I've found this balance where I'm telling them the honest truth, but I'm also telling them what we're doing about it. For example, last March COVID hit, we lost 40% of our business in two months. It was scary as hell, right? Forty. Uh, I lost forty percent of mine in forty-eight hours. <laughs> that is terrible. Um, and you know, telling the team about that, hey, we lost forty percent of our business. We are going to furlough the team, everyone across the board, down to eighty percent, so we can keep all of you on the team while we work our butts off to sell and get back to where we were. That was the reality of the situation. And I didn't, I didn't feel that we should keep anything from them, nor should they be too scared, right? Because we, I told them, when I have information, you will have it. And, you know, this isn't a perfect situation for us, but we are doing everything we possibly can to keep you all on the team. Uh, we applied for the PPP, and we didn't get it in the first round. And I told them, because it's like, I don't know. I think, I think at this point, hiding is worse. Um, But now we are actually doing way better than we were last year. We're growing again. We actually ended up growing a bit last year too, after all of that, um, after we were able to bring everyone back, sign some new accounts and all that good stuff. So we're pretty transparent with them, but I have to be tapped to tell people stuff, you know, like, oh, maybe we should communicate that to the team because I am not uh, typically just spill it all, I guess. What's your um, position then on, there are some CEOs who believe in doing like a, you know, let's say a monthly like financial review of the company. Like, hey, here's our metrics. Here's our goals. Here's where we're at to that. Um, and, and it won't just be like, here's our sales goals. It'll be like, here's what our costs have been the last month or the last quarter. Um, and then there are other CEOs who think, you know, that's that kind of information, that detail is really left for the executive team. And not everyone else needs to know that. So where, where do you fall within that spectrum? Monthly, we review revenue goals, margins. Um, so I guess we give a like decent overview. Um, I give them the information and then I give them the, the why behind it. Like if we are behind on sales goals, here's what's happening. Here are hiring goals and here's where we are and all of that. So I want them to have a good idea of what's coming in the business. Um, but that said, I think it can be really easy for an employee to hear. Like I remember when I was 22 being like, why am I making $38,000, you know, when the company is doing this and it's like, yeah. well, you actually don't realize all of the costs that goes into running a business, paying for the office that we haven't stepped foot in in a year, paying for health insurance, all that kind of stuff. So I, we give them a good amount of transparency and information. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that because I often say now you will never truly respect money until you've had to earn it from scratch yourself. And you realize, you know, there's actually a little like simulation I'll do. Like sometimes I'll go to like, you know, I went to DePaul and sometimes I'll go to DePaul and speak to like the entrepreneurship class, you know, just do a little like five minute, like here's what it's like kind of thing. And one of the little things I'll do is I'll get like two volunteers uh, and I'll be like, okay, let's say you have the company and you're the customer. Customer, here's a dollar. Give them your dollar because they sold you something. And it's like the person takes the dollar. And I'm like, all right, everyone cheer for him. He just made a dollar. And everyone cheers. And I'm like, okay, now give me that dollar. And here's 60 cents back because the government owns 30, 30 cents of this dollar. And then there's another 10 cents that are owed on expenses and payroll and all this other stuff. And when I just do that simple exercise, they're like, wait, what? What happened to my dollar? <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's, it's the government and it's everything else. I mean, 
running a company is an expensive endeavor. I just got all my tax projections for next year. And I was like, just looking at these numbers is honestly painful, you know, yeah. and that's stuff that you don't think about until you're in the place to be doling out the money to all the vendors and the government and whatever else. Mm-hmm. Like now I understand why, you know, uh, a CPA might be billed out at $300 an hour, yet they get paid $60,000 a year. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a different perspective, that's for sure. But and yeah. so I think if you're going to give that information, you have to give all of the information because you yeah. can't say we have a multi-million dollar revenue goal this year because then people are going to be like you know like i want mine and i think yeah. we have pretty good benefits and pay for people um we try to uh, treat our people i guess the way that i would want to be treated well and also i think in addition to give if you're going to give it to them give them all the information i think it also comes back to what you said before which is you say the why behind it so like it has to have context for them to matter right yes Correct. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, we talked to them about here's a hiring projection and here's why. Here is how we're calculating capacity for people. We're using this data. We're also listening to your feedback. Therefore, we think we'll need another person on April 1st. And we'll, you know, so we're giving them that level of information. And I think they appreciate it. It's been really fun watching some members of the team really come to understand how a business works. Um, one of the members of my design team has been with us now for three years, I want to say, and she came directly out of college as, as a fine arts designer. And now she asks questions that I'm like, wow, she really understands how the business works. And it's very impressive. And frankly, if you ever want to start a business working at a company that's going to tell you all of this stuff is great. A lot of people have left to, to start a company, but that's a whole whole different conversation. <laughs> no, and that's good too, because then you know that this person, like that's the difference between an employee who is showing up for the company as opposed to solely just showing up for their role. And there, and there are different, like there are definitely a lot of employees who they just are very good at their one thing that they do and they heads down, they don't even think about anything else, which it's fine. And then there are a certain subset of employees who actually think about the broader scope. How does their job fit within like the entire, you know, wheel that turns? And then why is that wheel turning? And those are often the employees that I feel like are the ones that you almost have to like latch onto as a leader and be like, these are the people we need to keep. I think those are the employees, right? And they really understand how they how they fit in the puzzle and what they can do to make their piece of the puzzle bigger or more valuable. And I think that's really cool. I've got two more questions here and then we're going to hit our wrap up. Um, my first one is with this growth and with losing people along the way uh, and then also gaining new people, can you talk through the emotional change that's happened, right? Like you've gone from running this company by yourself, taking, as you said, like kind of whatever work would come your way to then having freelancers, to then having employees, to then being like, hey, well, we have employees, but now we're scaling in a different way or we're scaling in a more professional way and organizing ourselves. So if you could take us inside the mind of Jackie and like that movie Inside Out, um, <laughs> what, like, what, what's like the, what are the what, which emotion levers are being pulled here? I have, I was just thinking about this because I've transformed my mind in a much different, I think in a very different way than I used to even five, four, three, two years ago. Um, I think that when you're running the company, if you want to remain as the CEO, a lot of companies bring in CEOs because someone like a, a marketer typically doesn't turn into a CEO, right? You have to always be ready to step into that next role and take on that challenge of whatever it is. And frankly, it's not always fun. Doing the marketing strategy, that is fun. I told you that I was diving into doing strategy on a pitch and I had a grand old time because I haven't done it in so long. You know, sometimes stepping into leadership means dealing with personnel issues and putting HR policies in place until you have that person in that role. And so I think you have to really be ready to take all of that on. And in that, I've started working on my mind because it's not, like I said, every single step has not been fun. And therefore I'm working on my mindset to make sure that I can show up every single day and still be passionate and dedicated to the work. 
Um, so that involves reading a lot of books, listening to a lot of podcasts, doing things like affirmations, um, yoga, taking care of myself physically and mentally instead of, I mean, I used to work 15 hours a day and sleep like three hours a night. And that was just silly because I was burning out. You know, I was constantly on this roller coaster of like feeling great and then burning out. And now I'm actually focusing and taking care of myself because I know I need to be fully mentally there to show up every day. You hear that everyone? There's no honor in working weekends just because Gary Vaynerchuk says you should. <laughs> he's a, he's almost like changed his tune a little bit too. He's not so like hustle, hustle, hustle anymore. He's like, well, good. Cause a lot of people listen to him and I think there's a over obsession with, with hustle culture for, for no good reason. Toxic. Um, you actually answered the second question I was going to ask, which is around like responsibilities you wish you could still be doing. And it sounds like market, marketing strategy is definitely something you wish you would still, you could still be doing on a regular basis. I like it, but I wrote a LinkedIn post on this once and it's about learning to love the process. I think there are some people that will step into every job they ever have and they're going to hate it because they don't, they don't try to invest and learn to love the process. I have had lots of jobs and I've figured out how to like pretty much all of them, even when other people didn't, because I have loved the process of learning, figuring out how to get to the next step, trying to build myself professionally and my like mental toughness. Um, and so even though every step of building a company isn't exactly fun, I have learned to love the process and the result of it. So honestly, I think anyone can get there. Yeah, I'll tell you, I never personally thought I would like, enjoy looking at a spreadsheet and not that I still, not that I do like spreadsheets now, I still don't like them. But when I, you understand like the purpose of why you're looking at that thing, you actually start to care about not just doing it, but even like getting better at whatever that like, you know, weird task that you never thought you'd be doing uh, actually mm -hmm. is. I know it's like I, five years ago when my coach started having me do a financial scorecard for the company every month. I remember filling it out the first time and I sent it back to her and I was like, this is dumb. I don't need to do this. I don't know where any of these numbers come from and I don't understand them. I'm not doing it. And she was like, yes, you are. Like you want to be successful. You need to understand all of these numbers or you're going to fail. Now it takes me 10 minutes every month. I'm still filling out the same numbers. I know where they come from, what they mean, how we can improve them. Um, you know, and it's now the process is fun. Now I love looking at our money and projecting cash flow and stuff like that. But man, I hated it five years ago. <laughs> All right, let's hit our wrap up now. Um, where can our listeners find you and learn more and find Excelity? I probably spend most of my time on LinkedIn. So that's a good place to find me and Excelity. Um, hit us up on our website or I mean, we're on most social channels as well. <laughs> I found you through LinkedIn originally. You had some videos a couple of years ago that were just like blowing up. Uh, yeah. And that's how we first connected, in fact. Yeah. Um, who's one person that you want to shout out? Could be, a, could be a team member, could be a client, could be a mentor, anybody. I'm going to shout out my business coach, uh, just like we were just talking about. She, she forces me to do everything I don't want to do. And I credit her with a lot of the, the company's growth because again, she makes me look at the things I don't want to and deal with the reality of every situation. And I just love her for that. Rebecca Heideprim, she's awesome. Awesome. We'll tag, we'll, uh, tag her in this. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, mm -hmm. We'll now do our top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners based on our discussion today. I'll go first and I'll toss it to you. Uh, we, the topic today was managing uh, turnover during a growth phase. A uh, lot of really good stuff that came out of this. I think the my biggest learning from what you shared was the idea of providing context to decision-making. Um, whether it is doing a financial review, whether it's, hey, this is the direction we're going in as a company, you cannot just tell people this is what we're doing and then close the book and go on your merry way. You have to give them context uh, if you expect to keep the right people. But then also... If, this might sound crass, but like trim the fat of who shouldn't be there for the, for the new direction or the, the next stage of the company. Jackie, top one or two lessons or takeaways. I think my biggest lesson in managing turnover through growth, the exact topic that we're speaking about today has been just to make sure to be really transparent and really look at yourself. I think in every single situation, we should be looking at ourselves to say, how could we have improved that outcome? 
And a lot of companies would go through, you know, a high turnover period and be like, ah, you know, those people weren't a fit. And we have this new, you know, new company that we're just hiring different kinds of people. And while that's part of it, you also have to look at how did I contribute to this situation? What were the red flags I didn't see? How can we improve our systems to make sure that we're hiring the right people? Um, so always turning it on yourself and making sure that you are contributing in the best way possible, I think is a, a life lesson in general. <laughs> yeah. Final question here, which is how we end every episode on this show. Fill in the blank, Jackie. Entrepreneurship is blank. Oh no, you told me about this and I didn't prepare for it. Uh, I would say entrepreneurship is absolutely unpredictable and also a beautiful ride. I would not exchange it for a thing. Absolutely unpredictable and also a beautiful ride. Some might say a roller coaster. Ah, <laughs> yes. Back to the roller coaster. I love it. It sure is. She is Jackie Hermes, founder and CEO of Excelity. Jackie, thank you so much for being here on the show today. And thank you for being the, the latest guest on Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Thanks for having me. This was an awesome conversation. That wraps up today's conversation. Did you like what you heard? Startup Hype Man, the podcast is available on every major platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. So be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and leave a rating and review. Do you want to be an upcoming guest on the show? Email media at startuphypeman.com with your idea and my team will review. Our theme song is Change the Game by Jay-Z, all rights owned by Rockefeller and Def Jam Records. And hey, if you want to work together on making your startup story the only one that matters, email me at rajiv at startuphypeman.com. That's R-A-J-I-V at startuphypeman.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to today's guests for joining. You have been checking out Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I'll catch you next week. But in the meantime, word up, raise up.